Hello, Don's fans. Welcome to another episode of Don the Stat. We're one year into the Brad Scott era at Essendon, so we thought it'd be a good time to reflect on what's happened since that appointment. To do that, I've asked Ricky Mangaitis to join me again. We had Ricky on to discuss the Brad Scott appointment around this time last year, and having seen the year play out, thought it'd be a good idea to get him back to analyse what he's seen as Scott's performance as a coach in his new role. And also, because he's a North fan, we'll be picking his brain about what to expect from our new recruits, Mackay and Goldstein, as well as touching on where footy is heading as a whole. Ricky, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, look, uh, for those who maybe missed the episode that we had you on previously or don't uh, follow you on, on Twitter or X now. Um, give us a bit of a summary of, of your background and also your work on the, on the shin boner, which I think would probably be the most interesting thing for Essendon fans to get information on. I was just thinking, am I the first non-Essendon person to be a two-time guest on the podcast? Is that- I think so. And you're not, and you're also a North fan. So I mean, like that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good effort. It's, not some- it's a historic day, isn't it? It is. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. In all seriousness, I um, so I used to be part of the media crew at North for six years. Well, um, while Brad was coach, so 2012 to 2017. Yes, technically, I was supposed to be running the socials along with writing for the website. In reality, I basically just spent most of it watching training and running around after the coaches, saying, "Hey, why does this happen? And why does that happen?" And for some reason they all answered me all the time which they didn't have to do that probably had the patience of a saint considering half the stuff i asked which most of it was just for my own knowledge <laughs> um you know it wasn't necessarily for website stuff or articles or whatever so um then i left north and i realized i was lucky enough to get access to all those things that what maybe one percent of football fans ever get close to and you know let alone actually understand and learn so wanted to put all that knowledge somewhere and share the stuff that i was lucky enough to learn so fired up the shinbona which was um a blog was initially focused on North stuff and, and then decided to branch out into league stuff, which has probably saved me from going insane given what North produced the last few years. Imagine trying to do North only stuff <laughs> the last five years. So, um, yeah, so basically it's all uh, in-depth um, analysis on, on game styles and more and team structures, all that sort of stuff. And then started up a Patreon as an addition to that uh, two seasons ago um, as an in-season exercise. So, you know, it's not running now, but um when it is um, just more video breakdowns, um, a bunch of extra list management tools and stats, that sort of stuff is really interesting to me, the way sort of demographics of lists and and how the teams build their players and who they get in, who they who they remove, depth charts, things like that. So, um, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's much more fun looking at uh, all the other teams, put it that way. Well, you know, eventually you'll get enough you know, top five draft picks that you'll you'll ask ask your way into a good side, but we'll, we'll, we'll we just need just need one more one more handout from the AFL, and then we'll be good. That's <laughs> it. You got any, any good free agency we can overpay for next year? That we'll- <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I did notice everyone go nuts about that front loaded deal with um, that came out today with the Caltuni reported. I actually thought it was smart, but I guess people see one point four million and just their mind explodes, which I guess I can understand. Yeah. Well, look, at, as you mentioned with the Shinbone, it's a great blog and I recommend it to any football fan, not just North Melbourne fans. Obviously, I, I learn a lot when you when you touch on other teams and obviously doing this show, I've got to be a, a bit more across what other teams are doing than just being a, a one-eyed Essendon nuffy. So it's helped me a lot in that. And I think if I, if I go back right to the start of the year, you posted something about minutes lost year on year, um, which I thought was really interesting. It's not something I, I really thought about. You know, we have the players coming in and the players coming out but we don't think about how that affects, you know, team cohesion. And I think just reflecting back, it was either Fremantle or Hawthorne that had, had lost the most minutes from the, the previous year. And particularly with Fremantle, the team that a lot of people were expecting to do quite well this year, I thought that was a, you know, a really good underlying reason why they might not might not be doing as well as they otherwise would have. And we're saying this year, they've also, you know, keep hemorrhaging players. There's something going on, you know, over over there. I'm not quite sure what's, what's happening there. This isn't... Um, Don the anchor, but we'll um, <laughs> wait, anchor the stat anchors or something. That doesn't make sense anyway. Um, but yeah, so, you know, as I said, there's a lot to learn from from what you do. And I really appreciate um, the work that you do. It really helps me. No, thanks. Yeah. I mean, my, I guess my general process is basically I'll watch something and go, oh, that's interesting. And then basically you think, well, if I find it interesting, I'll back myself that other people find it interesting as well. And that's, um, and that's it really. There's nothing more complicated than that. So I guess. I guess my instincts are right more often than not. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, the minute stuff I find really interesting because people always say, you know, teams have lost X amount of games. But, you know, what if that that person played two games in that year, that last year before they got delisted, right? Like what does their games in 2014 have to do with now, right? So just found the minutes part was something more, I guess, specific and relevant to the now and the short term. 
Yeah, well, I'll be looking forward to the the update for next year when you, when you get that done, and I'll probably refer to it again uh, when we do our season preview. But yeah, well, look, um, and as I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll make sure there's a link to to that uh, in the description of this episode for people who want to check it out. As you say, it's it's not a paid thing at the moment, but as I said, I, I definitely find the value in, in paying for that. There, um, look as. As you sort of hinted at when at the start, you've, you've had a quite a close look at what Brad Scott is like as a coach during your time at North Melbourne, and that's why we had you on the show last year when when he was appointed. So, I guess based on what you've seen from this year, what do you think he's changed much in terms of his approach? You know, there was much made of his work at the AFL and like giving him a different perspective. Do you do you get a sense of whether he has changed at all, or whether there's a lot of it's mostly what he was doing at North Melbourne in, in terms of the way he seems to be coaching and approaching games. Um, I mean, I think overall it's been relatively similar. Um, like hasn't come in and gone all of a sudden, like I'm Ross Lyon compared to, you know, um, to what he was at North. I think, um, I think later on getting, obviously getting to the nuts and bolts of what sort of what worked and what didn't. But I think the one change that I did notice was, I guess his demeanor and how he acted on game day. I know this is very Bill Simmons body language expert areas, but um so I mentioned that before I used to obviously work at North, but for those who don't know, now I'm at Channel 7 and and part of the 7 AFL socials. So as a result of that, I was able to be sort of on the ground for a few um, for a few SN games that Channel 7 televised, obviously. And, and from just watching Brad and observing him, it just looked like he was carrying himself with a much more, I guess, in, intimidating air, for lack of a better term, compared to compared to North. It's, it's not to say he was a, a laugh a minute at North, but... Um, I guess he was more emotions on his sleeve at North, I guess is probably the, the best way to describe it. Whereas um, he looks more intimidating and calculated, especially on game day um, in Essendon and combine that with his postseason comments, I guess, insinuating that the group needs to get better or, or go somewhere else to be, to be polite. I think, I think it's much more experienced coach who's coming in knowing exactly what he wants to achieve and, and what he has to do to, to get there. Um, obviously when he started at North, he was still what, like 34, 35 or something like that. So, you know, the benefit of, what a decade and a half in coaching and executive land. I think he he knows. I think he know, whatever his ideal end goal is at Essendon. Obviously, we don't know. Only time will tell. But I think he knows in his head what he wants to, to look like in terms of on field style and, and off field standards. And I think we saw the first part of that. So yeah, it's more the body language and the demeanor and basically how he's I think the players responded really well to him, um, which you never know. Sometimes coaches take a while to, to get their message through. Sometimes they get it um, straight away. And you saw that Essendon starts at four and one. Um, yeah. So uh, just that the way he carries himself, I think, is the biggest change I've noticed. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it's it's a lot. Um, I'm, I'm getting more of a closer look now, looking at it. And, and you sort of mentioned he's less... Um, He's less animated, so you know, as a as a social media person, you're not getting as many Brad Scott gifts <laughs> yes. as you may have got, say, in the North Melbourne years. So maybe in in that sense, you're feeling feeling a bit down on that. But I guess I think one of the criticisms that people levelled at him at, at North was he he stuck, you know, with players too long, certain players too long. That's at least that's one of the criticisms that's sort of been passed on to, to me from other North Melbourne fans. It's probably hard to tell after a year. Did you get a sense as to whether that's something that maybe he still is is doing or do you think there's more looking at other alternatives in terms of that that I playing position? I feel like that second year is when we'll get a pretty clear sense of of what he I guess who his favourites are because I felt like this year was very much intel gathering from how he carried himself at games and how what he said afterwards. Um, I guess when you watch six years of every single press conference he does twice, you kind of get a fair <laughs> a fair. Um, thought of what he's trying to get across with his comments. So I feel like that sort of stuff will probably come to the fore next year and then we'll know, oh, okay, these, you know, eight guys are his favourites. These sort of four guys are, you know, he would probably need extra explaining in the media of why they, of why those players are important to him. So I guess it's probably a little bit too early to tell with, um, tell with that. And yeah, I think next year will be sort of what reveals more. Yeah, and I guess we haven't really lost a lot of the players from this, obviously, Rizek, Thatcher, D'Ambrosio, but no one that was really, you know, in, in that other than those, up, even D'Ambrosio wasn't really a, a best 22 player was yeah, sort of on, yeah. on that fringe. So really only lost one best 22 player. So as you say, we'll get a, a fair sense of who he sees as, as really valuable going forward there. I guess just sort of reflecting as a whole before we, we dive deeper a bit later on, how did you see Essendon's year? 
obviously you would have seen us up close a few times with two North games and that was some of the North's better performances of, of the year. So, you, you know, <laughs> you may have even gone back and rewatched those ones uh, <laughs> compared to some of the other results. But I guess just overall, how did you see SNL for you turn out? Well, from a pure win-loss perspective, I had them at eight or nine to start the season. So I guess technically it's a, a bit better than I thought. Um, uh, from a process point of view, it was actually pretty much what I expected. Uh, I think we spoke about it last year that Brad Scott teams have always been able to score. Um, going back to North, and I think for the first two thirds of the year, that their efficiency rate was really good. Going going inside fifty, I think they led or were top three in sort of goals per inside fifty for quite for quite a while. Um, and that's and they weren't sort of kicking the lights out expected score wise, right? So um, they were getting you know normal quality shots, and, and basically their their ball movement was working well. Um, I thought the defense was going to take a little bit longer to sort out, um, which which it has. Or I mean, there wasn't you know, huge steps forward in in that respect. So. Um, yeah, been lost perspective a little bit better than I thought. Um, but process was roughly, but process was basically exactly what I thought. Um, and until it got tough at the end with, you know, players are sort of dropping left, right and center. It's hard to, it's hard to be competitive when that happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's pretty reflective of what, of how we sort of came out of the season. And it's, it's harder when you, you end on that, on that low yeah. point. I'm yeah. sort of suggesting, you know, in terms of, you look at you look at teams like Carlton and GWS. You know they had they had really bad dips this year, but then they peaked, you know, right at the end when when it really mattered. And so you sort of forget about you know the the down points. Whereas Essendon, you know, sort of peaked you know roughly around that middle period and then was down towards the end. So the the overarching feel is that it, it's it's a really poor it's a poor season because of that that ending. But as you say, you know there was quite a, quite a long time where they were playing you know good quality football, not top four quality football, but, you know, reasonable, reasonable football, particularly considering what had happened the year prior as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting, isn't it? How, how that end colors things that happened a lot with his time in North. Um, if you look back at some of those finals losses, um, some of them, the players were just exhausted like that, especially that prelim against um, that's against Sydney. And then sort of the 2016 elimination final against, against Adelaide, like the players were just, they just had nothing left and you get done by 70 points, whatever it was, 70, 80, I'll try to block it out of my mind. And and then that sort of comes back on the coach saying, how does how does the players not get up for finals? Like sometimes they've just got nothing left. And, mm. you know, it doesn't matter who's coaching to a certain extent. If the players haven't got anything left, then, then what can you do? Yeah. I guess that's why it's so valuable being in top four because if you're being in top four, you more likely than not are, are pretty safe in your final spot and you can manage your players a lot better than if you, you know, rush pushing really half a final. So obviously, you know, we've made a lot about, you know, Brad Scott getting North Melbourne sides, you know, performing above and, and getting to prelim finals. But as you say, you know, they had to play an extra game that the teams they face in those prelim finals and, you know, they had to work harder in at the back end of the season to, to get into that position. So as you say, that really hurts your ability to to really push through unless, you know, you have an amazing final series like a Bulldogs and everything goes right and every call goes your way and every bounce goes your way. And I think Sydney Sydney fans are very salty about that, but they yeah. get enough um yeah. they get yeah. enough things going their way. So I don't really feel that sorry for them. Well yeah, top four helps unless you're Melbourne. I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh look, let's let's start touching on on the players that Essence brought in from North Melbourne. Again, you you've watched them up really close and Let's start with with Ben Mackay, and you know you guys have got a pretty good uh, outcome for that, but we won't we won't dwell on, dwell on that. Well, I think we're pretty happy overall, and given our salary cap position, it, it's something we can we can afford to get. You know what's obviously a list need, and I guess look, it's taken a few years for him, and you know he's been on a list since it was drafted in 2015, and you know the first three or four years were, were very uh, dry in terms of the amount of games he's playing, but you know he's. And people say, so he's only played 70 games in, in seven years, but over the last three years, he's, you know, been really reliable in terms of his body and getting out there. And, you know, he's really held that North Melbourne defence together that really doesn't have a lot of other, you know, options for, for taking those, you know, bigger players or, or that. I guess what held him back in those early years and, and what are the key attributes that he's been able to develop? It's, it's funny that, that narrative, isn't it, about 70 games in seven years. But, like, the whole time he was playing relatively regularly in the VFL as well, you know. So, it wasn't like he was um, playing, you know, four games a year at VFL and AFL, you know. But, um, but yeah, he was re- really young when he was drafted. Um, and you combine that with his size and he was never going to be a world beater straight away. Um, he actually started Ford. Um, most of his first year on the list, he was playing Ford for Werribee and I was at most of those games. And, I mean, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that when he was playing Ford, he didn't get near it most of the time. Um, so 
yeah, that first, particularly that first half of his first year, it's like, uh, hmm, oh, what's going on here? Um, but so it wasn't until he got switched back that he really started improving. It's like, oh, wait a minute, he's back. He's not a forward. Uh, he's definitely back and he really started improving then. Um, so he got a debut at the end of 2017. But I think for the most part, why he didn't get a game was because he was stuck behind Tarrant and Robbie Tarrant and Scotty Thompson. And they were the two keys. And the way Brad structured up that team, there wasn't room for a third key tall, especially when Tarrant was basically playing on that biggest biggest defender. And they wanted Scotty Thompson to be that sort of second, but more mobile tweener kind of guy. So um and then, so that was why he got stuck basically until the end of 2019. Scotty Thompson retired uh, then, and that left a vacancy. Um, obviously, the start of 2020 with COVID, just, I don't want, almost don't want to reflect back on that time. But um, but then, yes, yeah, so around seven or eight, when Reece Shaw basically gave him an opportunity and said, oh, here you go, and just threw him into the deep end um, from memory play on Tom Lynch that night. And um, as is as has become custom for North over the last few years, they got absolutely walloped. But he actually stood out and did really well on Lynch straight away. And it's like, oh, hang on, like where'd that come from? He's played four games, four AFL games in his last in his first four years on the list, and he looked comfortable. And it's like, what happened there? And then it happened again and again the next few weeks against basically thrown in against the the main key forward. And it's like, hang on, like he's completely up to the level and. I'm not sure whether it was all that development he's done the VFL level or just a coincidence, I guess, that basically when he came in, um, you know, his, his role was pretty simple. With, with the way Reshaw set up the team, it was very, um, you know, I guess it was almost like a one-dimensional team in, in, in some respects, but that actually simplified his role as a key defender. Um, and then basically, so since then, like, he's, I guess the best way to describe him is a traditional key defender. Um, you give him a set defined role and he'll do it really well most weeks, um, he plays on the, he'll play on the biggest key forward for the most um, for the most part. Sometimes that can be you know that that ruckman as he as he comes down. So he's not someone that's going to freelance or hurt teams in possession. But from a pure defensive role, you give him that role and he'll do it. He'll beat his opponents most weeks. You, you mentioned Lynch there, and he's someone who's given Essendon trouble in the past. And obviously this year we had we had Hawkins and, and Hogan, Hogan's not really the the big big key key forward, but, you know, he got a hold of us this year. And I guess, you know, Oscar Allen, you know, even when West Coast were were struggling, he was still kicking goals against us. So you sort of mentioned there that, you know, he's someone who can really lock down. Has anyone anyone ever given him a lot of trouble that, you know, really stands out that every time you come up against him, like, oh, he's going to struggle this week or? No, 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 to be honest, no. Um, He's gone quite well against the, against the main forwards, the main biggest, you know, substitute that word, <laughs> however it fits. Like he, before he had a horror show this year against um, the Gold Coast King. He'd always play well, well against the brothers. He's always played really well against Hawkins as well. Um, obviously, every time North has played Geelong, they've, Geelong's had about 87 inside 50s. And, you know, there's only so much you can do when the ball <laughs> comes in comes in that much. But um, he's always fared really well against the bigger guys, Um so I, th- I think from that perspective, like if you compare him to Zerk Thatcher as a as a defensive, I guess, you know, one v one, like Mackay's a way way um, a significant upgrade on him. Yeah, well, I guess in sort of following on that, what what are sort of the areas in his game that he probably has to work on, and or given that you know you're playing in a in a team, teams can sort of compensate for for players if they if they're doing one or two things really well, you can find other players that can that can fill the space. And what are the things where Essendon's defence or what he himself is going to have to work on to, to cover for some some areas where he may lack. Right, so this might take a second. So I need to go back a step to explain this. So if we go back to last year, um, North under David Noble. So the instructions for the defensive group were to sit back and soak up pressure. Um, so for soccer fans, imagine it as a team sitting back, parking the bus, and that's kind of the mental image um, of how North wanted to set up. So Obviously, that should go without me saying that's a horrendous, dated philosophy when it comes to to an AFL team, and basically runs completely counter to how every other team has defended for the last, you know, seven eight years. Um, so then, as that relates to Mackay this year, um, Clarkson comes in, new, new coaches for the most part, and there's a very clear directive for defenders to press high, close up space, make the ground smaller, try to keep it locked in the forward half. So. There was a lot of responsibility on the key defenders to pick those right moments to come up and try to intercept and push forward and really read the play well. Um, so in other words, probably the better way to defend in the current AFL, uh, a million times better than what they were asked to do last year, but also a complete 180-degree shift. Like you completely almost like playing defending in two different sports with how different it was 
Um, so for whatever reasons, those instructions just didn't click every week for for Ben. Um, he couldn't quite grasp the right time to come forward. Intercept versus the right time to stay in place. Um, I was at the first game he played for the year in uh, Adelaide Hills for gather rounds. Um, midfield didn't go very well against Brisbane's that day, but you could tell he was really struggling with the cues and how to read it, when to come forward, when to come, when to stay where you are. And I think Danaher and, and Hippo just had a field day. They just sort of hung over the back and just, and Mackay and everyone else just got caught in no man's land. Um, so he, he was, the point is, so the point I'm trying to make is he just couldn't read the cues. Now, whether that was maybe he was subconsciously checked out, potentially, maybe all the, you know, all the happenings at the club during the year affected him, which I mean, is every chance given it was another, uh, let's go with interesting year. <laughs> um, or, may, or maybe he just can't add that to his game. I'm, I'm one of those three things, right? But um, the glaring error has made highlight reels and it's like, oh, look, how, look, he's he's gone and tried to intercept and he's got nowhere. But I think the more damaging ones is when he was sort of a half step early or late, which then throws those other defensive rotations um, out of the loop. The number of times sort of Logue or, or Core or even McDonald would just look at him sort of that subtle sideways glance of, you know, what on earth, do you, what on earth are you doing? How'd you end up there? It was um, in certain games, it was high. Um, now, again, how much of that is because what was ahead of the field for him wasn't performing well? Who knows, right? Um, so he's not going to be that guy. He's like, you expect him to be sort of kind of like a Darcy Moore light who's kind of running up and, and, def- and intercepting that way in terms of being really aggressive. That, that's not going to be him. Um, and he's not going to be someone who damages um, in possession. So they're, they're probably the two, the two main ones. Yeah, which is interesting because he's intercept. If you go to the way the AFL does their sale champion data, they they sort of rate him as elite. You know, he's got elite numbers for intercepts, but that's more is that more one on one rather than than zoning off? Yes. In your yeah. Opinion? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I don't have the one specific one on one numbers in front of me, um, but because he plays those bigger guys, and obviously those bigger guys are focal points for the most part, and he equips himself really well against those guys. Um, and if it's kind of like the smaller space that he's in, he can read that, but it's when you get him in open space and it's like, Hey, you need to go 20 meters up or you need to go 20 meters back. That's when he's, that's when he struggled this year in particular, trying to get those cues, right. Um, when it was sort of more condensed and he can go sort of, you know, he can peel off and be like a third man to the contest. That's really close to him. He's really, really good at that. It's just more that open space that he might, that he struggled in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the strengths that you highlighted are probably the, the things that we're looking for. So, yeah, exactly. you know, Zerk Thatcher, you know, good good player. I think we'll probably do a good job at Port. Radigalia probably takes the biggest the biggest backman and, and Zerk can probably be a, a number two, which is probably what he's more suited to. Um, and then Essendon, you know, with Mackay coming in, he, he fits in as that, as that number one. He takes those, those players we spoke about that we've historically struggled against uh, and then also also gives time for, for young players like Reed and Hayes to to learn their craft, get fit and, and potentially, you know, come in as twos. And, you know, when Makai moves, gets on a bit, you've got, you've got replacements there. So, again, I think it's a really good pickup for us and hopefully, Absolutely. you know, he keeps progressing in sort of a positive direction there and, and you know, <laughs> learns how to play in the back six. Hopefully he gets a bit more structure at the top, I guess, in terms of, Absolutely. you know, above because what's he had? He's had four five coaches if you count Brett Ratton, you know, across his time. I mean, yes. that's not much different from a lot of Essendon players, but I guess we're... Well, I guess, well, you can subtract one for Ben because you already had Brad, so, you know, yeah. technically it's... um Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, he's had, what, Noble, uh, Lee Adams was there for as a caretaker. Um, Reece Shaw, Clarkson, Ratton, and then Brad. Yeah, so what's that? Six coaches in, what's seven years or whatever? Or six coaches in five years, really, if you, if you started off from Brad's last year, right? So... It's um yeah it's not it's not the best best environment for someone to develop and grow is it? Yeah, sometimes you just need some stability. Yeah, I guess. Well, look, speaking of stability, there's there's one thing that's been pretty stable over the last probably decade and a half of North Melbourne, and that's that's Todd Goldstein. Right. So look, you know he's been around for sixteen seasons. He's played three hundred and fifteen games. I'm not sure anyone else um, from the same sort of age group would have played as many games, let alone. Mm-hmm. You know, a ruckman who you know constantly would you know players are bumping into them, knees knees in the ribs and and the like. But you know, remarkably durable. I'm, I'm sure you've you've probably watched every one of those those <laughs> games. There, what I guess he's obviously for most of his career, he's probably been a top three ruckman in the comp. What what are the things that make him so good in that role? 
I mean, something I'm, I won't be swayed on um, is that if he played those 315 games for a big club, he'd be like commonly accepted as one of the best of all rucks of all time. But yeah, North Melbourne tax and no one watches North Melbourne. It's just something you, <laughs> something you deal with. But um, I've said that to a few people and got funny looks, but I'm like, well, you're not convincing me otherwise. But um, I think what's made him such a good ruck over the years is that he can do it all and do it all himself. Um, so I actually went and found some numbers before I popped on tonight. So if we look at, say, 2013 to 2019, which I think is a fair estimate of his prime years, um, so he averaged 89% time on ground and only missed five games total in those seven years. And that includes and that includes two, obviously, prelim final runs the long way and, and a couple of um, other first week of finals. So and I think of those five games he missed, I think two of them were being rested in that last round before finals. I know one of them definitely was there in that. Richmond game in 2015 that kind of led the AFL to change the rules. But um, <laughs> to have a set and forget Ruck, who'd always, um, almost always, give his midfielders first service and he'd rarely, if ever, lose his direct matchup. What else can you hope for from that position, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, you've got, gives it also gives you midfielders, a, you know, someone they can trust all the time to to deliver the ball to them. Um you know, he's coming in towards the end of his career, although given his longevity, you know, it, it might not necessarily be his last year. There might still be more more to come. What's he like around around his teammates? Is he, is he someone that's really focused on getting the best out of himself first or does he work really hard to lift the standards of those around him? I'm not sure those are mutually exclusive, but that's just the way it came out no, in my I head. <laughs> no, I understand that for sure. No, he's more the uh, the lead by example type than the rah-rah speech man. Um, if that makes sense, if he if he hears this, he'll probably laugh at that mental image of him being the rah rah speech man. But uh, but yeah, it, it's the way he carries himself and the way everything he puts into puts into himself to prepare himself to be obviously the player that he's been over the last however many years. Like obviously, there's a slice of luck in being a big man, right, and avoiding serious injury for so long. But I think another part of that is putting yourself in the best position to avoid that injury by doing everything you can to get every possible drop out of yourself. So I think how that applies to Essendon is that, you know, Draper and Brian, like they get to, obviously Draper will be recovering from his surgery early doors, but, you know, those two on the training track, they see everything that Goldie does and they, in an ideal world, they realise, oh, that's what it takes to be one of the best rucks for a decade plus in this league. That's what I have to do. You know, it could be, you know, what's Goldie going to be 35, 36 by the time preseason starts and he'll still be running really well. Like he's always been a good time trial guy. Um, always runs. His, his ruck craft obviously has been good. Um, and I think that's where, in addition to what he provides on the field, I think that's where we have that lasting impact on guys like Draper and Brian. That, oh, that's what I've got to do to be the best. Yeah. And just sort of reflecting back on Brad Scott and what he said at the end of mm. the year about players needing to lead AFL lifestyles, you don't play you know, 315 games as a ruckman unless you're leading an AFL lifestyle. You know, you can't, you, you just can't do it. So I think he, he's, as you say, he's not going to be the person out the front telling everyone what to do, but it's about looking at what he does and, and how, how he prepares there. You mentioned Traper and, and Brian, I guess, assuming all are fit, uh, would you start Goldstein ahead of those two in round one? I'm, I'm sure you would as a, as a North fan, but I guess just generally, like just thinking about it. And, and do you think it's possible to play, say, Goldstein and, and one of the others because it's seen this twenty three games, because <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah, because it's seen this year that that Brad was pretty keen on having two rucks. Although again, that may be coming from you know what he had with with Goldstein and, and realizing that he hasn't got that this time, so he wants that ruck coverage across. He doesn't want to rely on you know like other teams do with you know a, a second forward going in there and, and pinching. He wants a, you know a good ruck in there the whole time. Do you, do you see it being able to work with say Goldstein and, and Draper? I know Draper's spoken about trying to play forward more and maybe fitting that in? Oh, well, actually, initially that was why I didn't quite understand when the news first came out, was it like you know, a month or, or two ago that Essendon were interested in Goldie? I thought, well, they've got Draper and Brian. Like, why, why do they want Goldie? And then I guess the news came out again about Draper's groin surgery and then I think he won't be back running till I think mid to late Jan, if I can remember those reports right, something like that. So, you know, big man, Big man, big groin area, um, gradual reloading from injury like that. I mean, I, I doubt he'll be ready for round one um, and I doubt he'll be anywhere close to match fitness in round one. Um, but to answer your question, assuming they're all fit and actually fit, you know, not a close enough is good enough thing. Um, I don't think, I think he should be third string Ruckman unless one of Draper or Brian is struggling to form, right? But um, but realistically, there's Draper and Brian, they're not going to be able to play 23 games each, both of them, right? And 
one of them will struggle perform, possibly both of them will struggle perform. Um, you know, Brian might be injured. You never know. Goldie hasn't been injured for about 12 years, but, you know, knock on wood, he might be injured as well, right? So, mm. um, yeah, if they all actually fit, I wouldn't um, – I had Goldie as third string behind those two just for what Essendon's needs are going forward. But I think, you know, the natural fluctuations of a season mean form change, fitness change, and I think you'll end up probably playing them sort of roughly half the games um, pending, a, pending a normal fitness run. You know, you never know what – Draper might take longer to recover. You know, Brian might go down with a contact injury. You never know. So, um, yeah, but if they're all, they're all fit, I wouldn't have Goldstein starting ahead of those two. That's interesting because I did my when I did my best 22, I actually had him as as the number one just to just to start yeah. off. It's like you know, set set the challenge for you know, Brian. Brian got to play a few games. I think he's probably at least a year or two off. You know, he's still really young. He's 21, 22. He's still a year year or two off being able to, to handle that burden. But I think, you know, setting the, setting the tiring, we get a bit carried away with it's better to be young than good in AFL, yeah. some, AFL sometimes. And, if you know, you look at you look at Goldstein's numbers from this year and I, I probably have them ahead of, definitely ahead of Brian and, and probably ahead of Draper in, in a lot of key areas. So if that's maintained the start next year, even if Draper is fit, I think there's a, a space to say he should start in that position. But I guess... Yeah, look, let's let's turn to Essendon as a whole. And as we sort of said, you, you do watch all teams and you, you try and get a sense of, of where teams are at and thinking about where they are headed forward. I guess, how do you see Essendon moving moving forward? Do you think there's a scope for much of a big jump in performance in, in the next year or do you think it's something that's a few years away and needs to develop more? Actually, just on Goldie first, you um, made a good point when you're talking best 22 for round one. Like, if I was doing that first, then I probably would have Goldie in there as well because of obviously Draper's injury. You never, like, you might miss the first month to six weeks, right? So, you never know. But, um, yeah, from Essendon's point of view, um, I don't um, – now I'm sorry. <coughs> the cough can be my pause. How about that? <laughs> um, yeah, from Essendon's point of view, I'm not – I don't think there'll be a huge like sort of 11 win to 15 win jump in performance or anything like that. I think what is a possibility and probably what I'd regard as a successful season from Essendon from the outside anyway, is it might be a similar win total kind of like that 11, 12, maybe 13 range, but with clear steps forward in the process. So to me, there'd be three things at the moment that I'm, I'd be looking for um, in that process. One will be stopping the opponent's ease of transition. So Essendon were bottom four in allowing teams to go from, their opposition defensive 50 to attacking inside 50. Obviously, you close that down and you get more time in forward half as a result. Um, second one, which would be general defense from both stoppage and turnovers. Um, so going by points conceded per stoppage, uh, did some research before I opted on. Um, points conceded from stoppage, Essendon were second last in the league. Um, and by points conceded per turnover, they were bottom five. So what that says to me is that you know, just the general defense, that's just got to be better, <laughs> as simple as it is. And then the third one is, I know the possession kick mark based style, everyone seems to think was either shambles or the way to go. And there was nothing in between because, you know, God forbid we have any nuance in online discussion, right? But um, maybe I'm in the minority, I don't know. But I saw it as a that style as the starting step in whatever that final offensive sort of, you know, process looks like. So I'd expect to see the next evolution in that, next year if it rolls out the same as 2023 i think that'd be a big warning sign but i don't think it will be so for me if those three things that i mentioned improve i think the win total to a certain extent is, is secondary yeah yeah i think the defensive markets as, as you sort of say and then you know if listeners are looking for something you, you probably want to go look at what the average points a game points against the game was this year and then sort of compare it to next year. And if you, you see a big improvement there, that's that's a big thing. It's often what you see with those those sides that are are making that jump. You know, maybe they don't quite get the win the win loss change, but their defenses improve. Or they you know, you say you can get a sense of it how good a team is by their percentage. You know, it's it's a, it's a rough metric, but you know, if you're defending well, you may not be you may be struggling to transition from defense to offense, but often they get that defense right. And then they, they start adding on that defensive stuff. And with the, the kick mark game, it's almost like defending with, with the ball, you know, rather than trying to defend when you don't have the ball. Cause then at least if you've got the ball, you've still got an opportunity to generate score and you're not giving the opposition a, ch- a chance to score. So maybe there's some of that there. Yeah. The switching part with that kick mark style. I mean, that, that part actually probably, it- Although the defensive part is obviously more important for Essendon in the short term to get that right, the kick mark stuff fascinates me because, I mean, in theory, you can see that as basically just sort of 
go through the gears. You can use it for defense. And then if you want to go quicker, you can use it offensively and all that and that sort of thing. And you can picture a perfect scenario where it's just like, oh, okay, we, we need to do this in the game. Let's ramp it up to fourth gear. Or, oh, actually, we're under the pump. Let's ramp it back to first or second and and let's let's maintain possession for 90 seconds. But, you know, people go, oh, it doesn't win in finals. It's like, well, there's there's plenty of different ways to play kick mark, right? Like <laughs> Sydney cut teams up, you know, last year and in, in, in their better times this year and from kick mark. But but they did it in a, in a way that was really damaging. So, and I think expecting Essendon to be at that level right now is is unfair on them. Yeah, I think it, it it worked for it worked for a time, and then obviously teams have have time to to work on how how teams are playing and work out ways to shut it down. I think they really denied Essendon the corridor in the second half of the year, and and that was we were really you sort of mentioned at the start of the, um, the way Noble was coaching and sort of getting the, the defense to hang back, and that's sort of what was happening at Essendon at the start of last year. But we were doing a really good job of keeping the corridor open, so we did get the ball. We could move it quickly, and that contributed to that, you know, high scoring efficiency that you, you mentioned there because we're getting it in good positions. But as the season went on, teams were able to deny that. And then with the kick mark, you know, if the, once the kick mark stops working, you need to have an outlet. You need to have that that tall player you can kick down the line the line to. And we just didn't have have that. You know, Peter Wright wasn't performing at the same level he'd done previously, and then you know we didn't really have that second tall forward that that could perform that role. So, or even our ruckman probably weren't doing the job that you would want them to do that. So, you know, there's there's ways in which that game style you mentioned it could could be successful. And it actually sort of leads into what I wanted to ask you next. So I'm always interested, I've been interested the last couple of years in the way in which teams win and the markers you can look at in terms of what makes a premiership side. And there's not a whole lot of things that, you know, suggest that a team is going to be a premiership side, but there's a few consistent things, you know, top four defense, uh, top four intercept differential, things along those lines usually indicate a team that's going to challenge for a premiership. And Collingwood was interesting this year because they weren't, they didn't quite align with that. If, you, if you're looking at the, the top four sides from this year, the one that you looked at based on stats and went, oh, they're the premier, the premiership team is probably Melbourne because they had that, they had that model that, you know, if you go back to probably, the Hawthorne years, that's what was successful. You know, they all play different ways, but the, the the numbers sort of played out that way. And Collingwood was a bit different. And then you had, you know, Brisbane played very different. Like they were the, the least tackling side in the competition. You wouldn't ever say that a team that doesn't tackle is going to, you know, really challenge for a flag, but they were right up there next to, next to Collingwood. So it was really different. So I guess what I'm trying to say, long-winded way of getting around to it. Do you, as I said, you watch more footy than most. Do you think we're seeing a shift in how the game is played in terms of what's going to be successful? Um, I mean, I think it's more of a, I guess, an evolution than a shift, I guess, if that's, I mean, it's, I mean, just probably splitting hairs and using those two words, right? But um, I mean, the way I've seen it is, so if we go back to the Bulldogs in 2016, right? So they were the antidote to Hawthorne's style. Um, like it's possession style. Um, that's that's an oversimplification, but <laughs> just roll with me. Um, and then obviously Richmond the next year took what the Bulldogs did to another level, and they were on top for what was it you know four or five years, something like that. And then Collingwood's almost like Richmond on steroids, not literally, just so people don't panic. But um, with the risks they take with their ball movement and how they play and and the pressure that's behind it, so I think there are base similarities in that those three teams, sort of Bulldogs, Richmond, Collingwood. Uh, but Collingwood have taken it to another level, and it's they're very they're very clearly a, a ball movement team. And I think if you look at Brisbane's second half of the year and why they looked a lot better, um, their ball movement got better compared to the first half of, of the year. Um, Melbourne's, I guess, an outlier almost in terms of their defense is so strong. And then you know that joke about the budgets, and you know you budget three, you know budget all this money on all these other things, and then Melbourne's forward line's about eight dollars, and it's like. <laughs> yeah, help me, <laughs> help me, help me. What am I doing wrong? Um, but I think that's what that's what's made this year so enjoyable for me is that you know, it's a copycat league, right? So teams see what Collingwood do, and and they've been trying to replicate that. So I think we're seeing a shift towards more of a ball movement, offensive, offensive type of thing. So, um, and again, going back and relating that back to Essendon and what we're saying before about the kick mark style, you can. It's quite easy to to see a scenario where you ramp that up a little bit and all of a sudden they're slicing teams in, you know, in maybe let's say 18, 24 months time um, with, I guess the, uh, the final, the final uh, boss, the final boss of their, of their ball move. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting with the, with the Collingwood example, yeah, they're premiers, but you know, it, it was a close run thing. All mm-hmm. three of their finals, you know, something goes wrong. 
and it goes the other, you know, could go the other way. It doesn't seem like as secure a method of winning a flag as, say, the Hawthorne of, you know, their three P, you know, they were far and away the best and, and their game style, you know, really allowed them to more often than not, you know, dominate games and, and control games. Whereas Collingwood, it seems a lot more, you know, chaotic yeah. there. And there's, there's a lot that could go wrong, but obviously I guess when you've, for them, when you've, you've got that experience of winning those close games, it becomes a lot easier. You know, the more you win them, the, the more likely you are to, to feel confident in those situations and, and get over, get over the line more often than not, even though, History suggests you know, those close games are, are more of a coin flip. There, that's, I guess, just sort of thinking about the top size. Like every every year when they people do their their top eights predictions, usually it's the same as the previous previous year, and you know no one can ever see a, a team coming up. It's obviously there's a lot to play out with the draft, but that doesn't usually have a huge impact on where teams how, if teams are going to be successful unless you bring in a you know a Nick Dacos or something like that. Yeah. Do you see much shake-up amongst those top sides this year? Is there anyone that's an obvious drop-off for you or, or is um, someone who's obviously going to really push up? I think uh, if we if we just look at those top four teams, I think the most likely of those four to like significantly slide if they get a couple of injuries is Melbourne. Just because obviously their top end is just unbelievably talented and you know their, their collection of stars, like every other team in the league would kill for, I would imagine. But like so much of their depth has, dis- has disappeared over the last, and good players, to be honest, has disappeared over the last couple of years. You know, you think guys like Hunt and Bedford and Baker and Jordan and even, you know, Harms and Hibbert and obviously Grundy didn't work out, but he's still, you know, an AFL tier player. So, and we know their forward line struggles. So if a couple of key pieces are hurt, like they don't have a lot of proven depth underneath that that can, that can plug and play. And I think, uh, so I think if, you know, if they have um, a couple of injuries to keep, key players they might struggle um elsewhere i think Collingwood to hang around even though they're a sneaky old team um i can't see brisbane going anywhere while they're literally undefeated at home <laughs> right so um i think port will still be around the mark maybe not top four um but they rectified a few game style issues this year um and their midfield is just you know so so good. it's good enough to carry them for the next decade right all things permitting so um and if if their defensive uh acquisitions help them, which I'm not super convinced about, but we'll wait and see. Um, I don't think they'll be top four, but I think they'll still be good. So, yeah, if, if I had to pick one team to slide if they get a couple of injuries, I think it's Melbourne just because of that lack of depth. Yeah. That sort of happens with the, those teams are up the top. You know, your, your middle tier gets gets poached and, you know, the players you bring in aren't quite as good. And, you, you know, you, you know, you're bringing players like a Dunstan or a, you know, we, even even a Grundy level and it doesn't quite work out. And so you, you start getting more misses and hits. And then, as you say, once you get those injuries, you, you fall away a bit. I guess you mentioned the slider. Who do you think is going to be the big the big jumping side in terms of moving moving into the eight from outside the eight? Well, technically, I actually think my big improvement is going to be Sydney, but that doesn't really count to answer your question, does it? Because <laughs> they made the finals. Um, I mean, if it's not... I mean, if it's not the Bulldogs from outside the eight, I don't think Beveridge will have a job by the end of the year, right? Um, I just, I just, yeah, their defensive um, method has just been obviously creaky for years, um, and they, they just have so much talent in there. It just doesn't feel like they're being optimized in the, in the best possible way. Um, but in terms of making jumps, I know Sydney they lost an elimination final, so what does that mean? They finished seventh or eighth. I never quite figure, know how they figure out those final positions, but. Um, them getting Adams and Jordan and Grundy, and I think to me signifies they're going to re- sort of rehaul their midfield rotation and create a purely inside role in the in that midfield. Um, they were really inconsistent with their contested stuff this year, and I think that's what held them back. If you go back to twenty twenty one, sorry twenty twenty two, the reason they made that leap in the second half of the year was because their contested stuff was strong, and they were able to add that to their ball movement. Um, this year, it dropped off. That's why. That's why they were really inconsistent and fell away a lot late in games. I think they lost seven last quarters by 20 or more points, which is yeah, just not the profile of a, of a top four side, right? But we already know their ball movement game is one of one of the best. Um, you know, obviously, Collins is number one there in terms of ball movement, but you know, they're not Sydney's not far behind when it's running. So if they fix that contested stuff, um, and they really they really have almost a complete profile. Um, Again, if they're not sort of beset by injuries that they were this year. Yeah. And I guess look, before we start wrapping up tonight, I'll let you speak about North Melbourne for, for a couple of minutes and, and what you think is going to happen next year. You know, Clarkson looks like he's probably going to have 
a full year, hopefully, and you know you're going to bring in another one or two young young talent. Do you think you'll really push for that number one or number one pick, or do you think it's it's <laughs> going to be too hard to give up? It, it seems like West Coast going to hold out for pick two and three. I guess yeah. you're you're the list manager of of North <laughs> Melbourne. Are you are you doing that deal to get Harley Reid, or you, you you're backing yourself to get two really good talents in and you know get that broader depth of of player across across your list? Yeah, that the latter. Um, I mean, I should put a big sort of little caveat on that that individual draft profiles isn't something that I am an expert on, but it's in in a general sense when it comes to a, a list field and especially where especially where North list build is um, at this current time, they just need more bodies. Like you look at the projected list for next year and it's just like there's one or two injuries in a couple of spots. You're like, uh, there's, there's no one there. Like literally <laughs> no one there, right? <coughs> so it's the most I've talked in about four months. So <laughs> um, where was I? Uh, yes. Yeah, and it's just so skinny in certain areas. So, or is it 2, 3, 15, 17, 18? Those last three picks, God knows if they're actually at those numbers once you include academy things, right? So, um, I, I actually just take those five picks to the draft and, and just get bodies in. Um, you know, two and three are going to be good and you bank to hit on one of those three picks in the teens um, as an average. And if you hit on two, you're going well. And then all of a sudden, you've got four best 22 guys. Um, that, can, that can improve the team a little bit next year and then obviously significantly in you know, sort of two, three, four years time. Yeah. And I guess one of the things about a lot of successful sides is they get that talent in, in, in big clumps. So they all come together you know, at the same time. So Geelong, the, the 99 and the 01 drafts, and then you've got Hawthorne with the 04 draft and, and so on, you know, you get those clumps of talent in and, and they're successful and, and that's how you, you push for success. And I guess that's what we're hoping at Essen with the, the 2020 uh, draft, obviously, and then, you know, getting a couple more across the next couple more high draft picks across the next couple of years. Is that there. the hope for, um, I guess, for, now I'm asking you a question, I've flipped it around. <laughs> is, that, is that the hope with sort of, not necessarily from a draft point of view, but getting um, Mackay and Gresham and Dersmo in to add to whatever the draft profile is this year? Is that the hope that you sort of get, let's say, six best 22 guys in in one shot? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I think, I said once the trade suit period was completed, we haven't really improved our ceiling all that much, but we've improved our floor and that the gap between the, the best and the worst performances should lessen because now you've got, of the considering the players have gone out and the players have come in, you, you've got a lot more depth across pretty much all lines, maybe not forward, you know, in terms of key forwards at the moment, but across all other lines. And that's really important in terms of, you know, building that defensive structure and that creates a lot more competition for spots. I think towards the end of the year, you know, even considering the injuries, we didn't have the, there were players that obviously shouldn't have been playing, but they had to play because there was no one below that was of sufficient quality to, to push them out. And so I think that's going to help as well, you know, so someone like a Jake Kelly, who was probably best 22 for most of the last couple of years, is probably going to be out of the side. But then, you know, that's better than, say, uh, uh, Brett Montgomery, who, who's never going to play an AFL game, trying to push someone out of the side. So I think that's what it's the benefit of those players is going to be. And it also gives the players a bit more time. I mentioned Reed and Hayes earlier on, that Mackay is going to give them a bit more uh, breathing space. Dersma on a wing, you know, adds to the rotation with, with Martin and Durham, but also means potentially that Cox doesn't have to, you know, really push up to that role that he might not be suited to. Again, Gresham, again, gives the, the Davies and, and Wanganeen time to to improve. Um, I think he's really underrated, Gresham. You look at some of his numbers, I, I don't think he's been done justice, and I think he's going to be probably the best of the four in terms, in terms of pickups there. So, yeah, I just... As I said, I don't think it's going to improve our ceiling. And I think, you know, roughly what you said, maybe an extra win, it really depends on on the draw. And, you know, these days it really depends on your double ups, doesn't it? And, and where you yeah. play play teams, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, we'll see how, how that goes. But, you know, roughly the same, but improved effect. Like if, if we come out of next year with with the same amount of wins, but we've, say, we're having two goals a game less kicked again, against us, I think that's a really good process moving forward that you you know you're developing and improving there so that's what i see roughly not really having thought about it a whole lot but that's sort of the markers that i would be looking at to, to say we've improved and it's been a successful year even if we don't make or win a final despite what people in the media say we have to make finals and, and win them i don't and i don't think brad scott's thinking that way either i think he, he recognizes it's a long 
it's a long game. And if you push and, and, and you rush, that's when you start making mistakes and you start cutting corners and, and that's when things fall apart. Yeah, I, spr- I sprung that question on you. <laughs> yeah, Essen, Essen is really interesting to me, actually, because um, obviously with those, it's tr- almost almost trying to rebuild without bottling me, me out. You know, like it's um, it almost gives you not as much margin for error as mm. I, I shouldn't bring up North, but in, just in terms, of, obviously North just have so many swings at it, right? Um, whereas you look at the team that Essen is already already respectable, which I can comfortably say that North it hasn't been over the last four years. Um, it's really interesting of how how do you find the way to get those to get that A grade talent in so so you don't end up in a position not that I'm saying Essen is in this position, but so you don't end up kind of something like a St. Kilda where like they're a nice team. Like they're never going to be bad, but you look at it and you go, oh, there's a really clear ceiling on that team. You know? Um so how Eston go about avoiding that and bringing talent in and hopefully nailing those draft picks is um it's fascinating to me. Yeah, list, yeah. list management build is yeah interesting to me. Yeah, well, as you say, teams successful teams have never really built from the middle, which is what we're trying to do. And I guess you've got the experience looking looking at North Melbourne through those successful years where you you didn't really have a first round pick for about eight years because you were constantly trading them out. And I think that sort of kept you at that you know, at a, at a reasonably performing level, but it also put limits on on how far you could push. And I think one of the really good things about this trade period is that we've got the, asset, the assets you've got to deal with uh, players, you've got picks and you've got money. And what we've done is for the most part, we've kept our players, we've kept our picks and we've used the, the money resource that, that we've had a lot of to bring players in to improve performance. And as we saw from, from Cal's article today, it's not going to, if the way in which those um, those deals are structured, it's not going to have a long-term impact. It's not like it's a, a Buddy Franklin where, you know, you can pay $1.2 million in your 10th year to play half a season. So, yeah, I think in that way it's good. You know, that's not, that money resource is not always going to last forever. You know, it does sound like they're going to try free agency again next year and then, you know, younger players are going to want more money. Nick Martin's coming out of contract. Well, you know, he'll be... He'll be pretty expensive next year, I imagine, given West Coast are probably going to come pretty hard at him. So, yeah, I think we've got to have space there. But, yeah, this year we've used the money resource that we've had and we've kept those other things in place. So I think, as I said, raise the floor, not the ceiling um, with this uh, draft and trade period, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the floor versus ceiling. I think, yeah, I mean, North done a little bit of that in terms of trying to get um, got, getting Fisher and Stevens in, obviously on a much lower level. Um, and you need you need half a dozen to you know ten of those floor raises, right? That you know they're not necessarily going to be A graders, but you know they're not going to dip below say like a B minus on any given day, right? So um, yeah, it's all it's all interesting to me. We could, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, look, I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you tonight as as I did last time we did. So look, as, thanks for your time tonight. Jumping on after after work, it was really great getting your insights on the show. Any final words you'd like to say before we end tonight? Uh, no, just thanks for having me. It's always it's always fun hopping on. I enjoyed it. Yeah, look, as I said, I, I enjoyed it too. And there'll be linked to your socials and, and the Shimbona in the description of the episode for people who want to check you out and your work. As always, thanks to everyone who listens and engages us around the show. Um, I think we'll probably have something pre-draft, not sure yet, but we'll, we'll work on that. But other than that, stay safe and go Dons.